everyone. Welcome back to Chris's Courses and our current series, Questions in Genesis, where we're going through the first book of Scripture and, well, seeing what questions it actually is asking of us about who God is and about who we are as God's creation, as God's people. So where we're at right now, we've just kind of had a big shift from chapter 11 to chapter 12. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are about God's creating all of humanity and then how humanity tends to kind of mess everything up. But it's got this kind of global scale in the beginning. But then you get to chapter 12, and the shift is the call of Abraham. Now God is going to focus on this specific family and bless all the world through him. So even though the focus now is on the eventual people of Israel, it's not that God no longer cares about the whole world. It's that Israel is going to be like God's focus group. He's going to focus on them, give them a way to live, and then eventually they can bless everybody else. And of course, because uh, Israel, because Abraham is still human, he still has a lot of the same flaws, and God is still going to work with those. We've already seen a pattern that we'll, we'll see often through this book is uh, people will act in faith and do great things and then immediately go and do something unfaithful, right? So Abraham, in faith, leaves his homeland uh, to a place he doesn't know with a God that he doesn't know, and so that's, that's awesome, you know, a great show of faith. And then right after that, he gets scared and passes off his wife as his sister and basically lets her be married to uh, uh, the Pharaoh, and that messes everything up for people there. So there's a lot of power that comes with this promise, and we're going to see how Abraham and Sarah continue to go back and forth with it. So we're going to pick up in chapter 14, but we're not actually going to read all of this chapter. It's, it's kind of one of these odd stories where it's this big war between lots of kings in, in this area of Canaan, and it, I guess, was important to them, but really not much here seems that relevant about who these kings are. Uh, but the, the part where it starts to become interesting or relevant is in verse 12, where it says, during this big war that's going on, Abraham's nephew Lot is captured. And so Abraham goes out to save him. He takes you know a bunch of his men with him. But we're actually seeing Abraham as kind of a warrior here, which is not usually the way we think of him. You think of him just being this, this old man, this old farmer. But he uh, clearly was able to you know overcome in this battle and rescue his, his nephew. And now the, the really interesting part of this chapter comes after they rescue Lot, and this king Melchizedek comes to uh, talk with Abraham, to come and bless him. It says in verse 18 that he was a priest of God Most High. Uh, and he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this term, God Most High, uh, the Hebrew for that is El Elyon, and that name probably refers to a specific Canaanite god who was, who was known by that name. Uh, and so that's who Melchizedek is, is really a priest for. And yet when Abraham responds to him, he says, I have sworn by the Lord, which when uh, Lord is in all caps like this in our English Bibles, that's the name of, of God, Yahweh. I have sworn by Yahweh, God most high, maker of heaven and earth. Um, and then he goes on to say, basically, I'm not going to let you make me rich because I'm going to rely on, on God's blessings. So it's, it's kind of interesting to figure out what is the relationship between uh, this God most high and Yahweh. 
Melchizedek, uh, I'm sure, doesn't know the name Yahweh, or at least he doesn't identify his God as, as that God. Um, and yet Abraham says that, no, Yahweh is the true God Most High. Uh, as if, so is it, well, I know his actual name, and you don't, so let me tell you more about this God that you're worshiping. Is Abraham saying, yeah, we actually worship the same God, I just know him better than you do. It was a common belief in the ancient world that, you know, the gods were the same, they were just different names in different places, so you go even into, you know, the first century, uh, Greece and Rome and their religions, they called the main god either Zeus or Jupiter, but said he's basically the same, it's just different names. So is that what going, what's going on here? Or is uh, Abraham trying to kind of bring these two together? Uh, it's, it's a little bit unclear. Uh, the point is, Abraham knows who the true Most High God is, but whether they're worshiping the same God or another God is, is actually a little unclear. Now, if you want more on Melchizedek, you can read Psalm 110 or the book of Hebrews. <laughs> the Hebrews writer spends a lot of time on Melchizedek. Uh, we see this was, you know, he's kind of this odd figure that just appears. And so something that often happens with figures like that is Jewish writers, especially during the time between uh, the Old Testament and New Testament would kind of expand and imagine more about them, and so that, that carries over into Hebrews as well. But we're not going to get into all of that today. Instead, let's uh, continue on with uh, Genesis itself and go into chapter 15. So here we get uh, another story of God and Abraham. <clears throat> After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Ab Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. So we're, we're continuing to figure out what, what is faith? What does faith look like? And how is that present throughout Abraham's story? One thing we see here is that faith is not just kind of this passive thing that you have, right? You make a decision one time, and now you have faith. No, it's something you've got you to gotta work it out. Uh, sometimes you've got to argue it out even. And so, you know, God is the one that, that starts all of this, that starts the conversation. And he's just kind of reminding him, you know, I'm with you. I'm going to protect you as your shield. Your reward is going to be great, which in some sense means he's, he's you know, receiving something based on what he's done. Uh, but, um, you know, it's not really working out for Abraham as far as he's concerned. He says, look, all my possessions are going to go to a slave in my, in my household. That's, that's the best I've got. And so there is kind of a challenge on God here. The, he needs an heir in order to inherit the land, and that hasn't been provided. Uh, Abraham has done what he's been called to do, and God has so far not held up God's end of the bargain. So how could God respond to Abram's uh, question, his uh, challenge, you might say, here? Well, there could be a negative side of God saying, well, how dare you question me? Right? I, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Of course you're going to have this heir. God doesn't do that. Now, on the other side, you know, what I would probably, probably prefer if I were in this situation 
is God for saying, okay, well, sorry, here's the exact timeline, Abraham, of everything that's going to happen. Here's when the son's going to be born. Here's, you know, what's going to happen after this. Uh, you know, when, when God makes a promise to us or when, when we even feel that God is leading us somewhere, it doesn't always uh, work out as clearly as we would like. Uh, we don't get a timeline uh, almost ever. Uh, and so, you know, faith is going to depend on not having those sort of things. And yet, we can still ask those questions. It's not unfaithful to say, why is this happening still? Why is this not working out? Uh, how long is it going to be? We may not get the answer that we want, but it's okay to ask. So what does God do? He doesn't, uh, you know, angrily respond to what Abram says. He doesn't give a very clear timeline. Instead, they go look at the stars. And, you know, you wonder, okay, well, what good does that do? I could, if I were Abraham, I might still be not that encouraged by this. Why would Abraham believe just by going and looking at the stars? You know, God has already promised that the people, his children, would be as numerous as the dust. So this is basically the same thing. But we see here that it's, it's relying on the promise maker despite evidence against the promise. I mean, there might be a little bit of, hey, you know, look at all these stars. You know who made those, right? <laughs> so maybe God is kind of subtly pointing out his power. Uh, but whatever it is, it, it, it's enough for Abraham. And so he trusts him, right? We have this famous verse. We'll, we'll come back to it at the end and look at how other writers have used it of, you know, he believed God, he put his faith in God, and God considers that righteous. So we're seeing here that faith is a relational kind of word. Uh, to me, the best synonym for faith is, is trust. Faith is not about what, it's about who, right? Is your trust in this person? Just like, you know, if I say I believe in you, I'm not just saying I think you exist. I'm saying uh, I trust you. I, I believe you can do what you set your mind to. I believe you're going to do what's right here. And so it should be the same when we, we think about having faith in God. I know sometimes it, it's a challenge to believe that God is there because we don't see God the same way we see other people. But to say I believe in God is not just admitting there is a God. It's, it's saying I believe that God is on my side. I believe that God has good in store for me and God is worthy of my trust. And so because Abraham has that kind of trust, God considers him righteous. Now, this is one of those big Bible words that shows up a lot, and we often think of it as just, okay, he, he checked the right box, uh, and so he's a good religious person. Well, I think righteousness also needs to be seen in this same sort of relational vein. It's, it's about faithfulness. It's about keeping one's commitments and obligations, but not like in a you know, strict legal way, but obligations that we've made to people that we uh, have a relationship with. Really being righteous means you do right by someone else. Uh, and so that's inherently relational. So Abraham is righteous because he's doing right by God by believing, even though things don't seem to be going the way that, that it should. And, but there's still this question, well, is God going to do right by Abraham? Is he going to give him the, the heir that he needs? And we don't immediately get that, but instead God does something, something else, something that might seem strange again. So picking up in verse 7, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, 
Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? They said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, and all the other ites. I usually don't like to read all those names. You get the point, right? So he showed the great faith here, and yet he's still a little unsure, right? How can I know for sure that I'll possess it? Again, God is not upset by that request. That's not really seen as, as a lack of faith, wanting to know. Uh, now, he explains a little bit, God does, about why it's going to take how, so long to completely fulfill the promise. He doesn't say, here's why you don't have a son yet, which seems to be the re- issue at hand. Uh, but we get this story that's kind of foreshadowing the exodus here. And yet, Abraham is still going to have to have patience, I think is kind of the big point. I think faith and patience often go together as well. You know, faith is in things that you can't see very often. And so you have to be patient before you do see them. If you see it, then you don't need faith, just like with hope. If you hope, you, nobody hopes for what they already have, as Paul says in Romans 8. And so to kind of give uh, Abram some, some encouragement as he's waiting on this, God cuts a covenant. So we see here, it, it calls it a covenant at the end in verse 18, but we know from other biblical uh, sources like Jeremiah 34 and even non-biblical sources that this was an ancient ritual, a way of kind of making a deal. They would call it cutting a covenant, uh, and they mean that literally. So what you would do, as we see here, you take animals and you cut them in half and then you kind of line them up and then you would walk through the middle of them. And the point of doing that is to say, may the same thing happen to me if I break my promise. Uh, So it's, I mean, it's pretty intense and a little bit gory, but it's just a way of um, saying I'm serious about whatever I'm committing to here. And so what's interesting is that God is the one that does this. Abram doesn't say, well, I need you to make a covenant with me to prove that you're going to do it. God, of his own accord, chooses to do this, right? We see consistently it's God taking the initiative uh, to bless, to make promises, to make covenants, and even here to put God's own reputation on the line. Now, part of this promise, along with the having heirs and inheriting the land, he says, Abraham will die in a good old age and be buried and, and go to his ancestors. Now, I guess that's a, a good promise, yeah, it just kind of shows us that at this point in, in the story of Scripture, this there was no real afterlife hope. This was kind of where your story would end. You know, he has to trust that he's not going to see all these descendants, but 
um, it's still going to happen. Um, but the best that will happen for him is that he'll die surrounded by loved ones and go to be with his ancestors. That tends to be the way that they talk about a good sort of death in the Old Testament. So here we have stories, even though Abraham has questions, he's seen as a person of faith. And so, of course, after we get a positive story, next we get a story where things don't go quite as well. So let's go to chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had a, an Egyptian and slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, your slave girl's in your power. Do with her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. So again, continuing this pattern, stories of faithfulness, stories of mistrust. Now, it's been 10 years, we're told here, uh, since the promise. So you can understand why they're getting a little impatient and worrying about this and wondering why it hasn't happened. It mentions later on that Sarah's 84, Abraham is 85, I think I've said before that ages and numbers in the Old Testament sometimes are more metaphorical than literal, but the point is they're, they're kind of past the point when you ex would expect this to happen. Even if they were half that age, this would be uh, pretty far along. But you, know, you kind of have to put yourself in the different character's shoes in this story. How would Sarah feel at this point, not being able to have children? You know, in, in the ancient world, and still sometimes in some places today, the main thing that a woman was there to do was provide male children for her husband. Uh, it's unfortunate that that's all they were seen to do, but you know, imagine if that's all was expected and then you're not able to do that one thing. Uh, and so you can understand that she's angry or upset. Uh, you look at the way she talks about it. She says, God has prevented me from having children. Um, maybe you know, it is kind of on God in some way, how we parse out, is it God doing it? Is it God allowing it to happen? Is, is there any real difference in that, if God's over it all? What we tend to see more in the Old Testament is the idea that God is behind everything. There's no other powers at work. Uh, it's just God deciding what does and doesn't happen. But infertility, it's, it's still a common problem. Not everybody who wants to have the children they want is able to, and it can be difficult and challenging, and um, Sarah is feeling that, and maybe many of you can connect with that, that type of story. Now, the solution they come up with, though, is, you know, as much as we might sympathize with her feeling upset, uh, I don't think we should see this as a good solution. Right? She suggests, well, Abram, just, just sleep with my slave. And then we'll get a baby that way. Now, in their culture, there's nothing wrong with Abram sleeping with a slave. And it's unclear exactly how the text is presenting this as a moral failure. I think it would still say it's a, a failure of trust. But I think we're right to see this as totally immoral. Right. Does Hagar have any say in this? No, she doesn't, right? There's no consent. Um, this is sex slavery. This is a horrible thing. 
but it's it's what happens when people take these ideas into their own hands. Um, now, the way they're thinking about it is not, well, Abraham, you just, you know, Sarah, Hagar will be your wife and you'll have children through her. No, it's like, you'll get this baby and then the baby will be ours, is Sarah's thinking here, right? She's saying, this will be my child. So Hagar's expected to bear a child and not even consider it her own. So, I don't know, what's your opinion of Sarah in this story? Right? Uh, she comes across pretty poorly to me uh, in, in what she decides to do, and then also the way that she acts after this happens. Right? This is her plan to have Abram sleep with this slave and, and produce a child, and then it happens, and then she gets mad at Abram for it. Right? Like, what are you doing to me here? And um, you know, it, We're seeing a pattern. It, to me, it kind of reminds us of the, the very beginning in chapter 3, with Adam and Eve after they sinned, and what do they do? They just blame someone else for the mistakes they make. Just like Adam said, well, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit. Uh, Sarah's saying, well, you know, now look at what she's doing after you, you know, gave her this child. Um, and, you know, Abram just kind of listened to what she said. Um, so Sarah doesn't come across well. Uh, you know, she ends up mistreating Hagar so much that she runs away at the end. But then we also have Abram, who also does not come across well, mainly because he's so passive here. You've seen already how much he is willing to, you know, have a conversation with God and say, well, maybe this isn't right. He doesn't really do that here. Uh, he just listens to her when she says to do this. And then when, uh, when Sarah's upset and uh, he just says, hey, it's your slave, do what you want with her, knowing that, you know, she's not going to do good things. All right, he should show some responsibility or leadership here, uh, but he doesn't. He just kind of lets things go, even though he knows it's probably not the best plan. Um, so yeah, saying, if you want to abuse your slave, go ahead, is not look good on, on him. So Abram and Sarah both come across pretty poorly. But what about Hagar? Uh, her story is actually where I think the, this text wants to focus. So let's continue in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy. For she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Be'er Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So what we're seeing here is that even though we've now kind of shifted focus to the people of Israel, God still cares for outsiders. Israel exists for the sake of the nations. And unfortunately, here we have a story where uh, Israel is mistreating other people, and yet God is still giving a blessing to them. All right, if God were only concerned about Abraham and Sarah and their actual offspring, he'd tell Hagar, yeah, get out of here. Too bad. This wasn't what I wanted. You shouldn't have done this. 
So, yeah, just go on. But what happens is God blesses her and her child in spite of the bad choices of the people of the promise. And in fact, he gives her an equal blessing. He says, you're going to be a multitude as well. This son, Ishmael, is going to be a large family, right? We're seeing here that it's not, okay, well, Abram messed up, so now Abram's going to get half the multitude that he was getting, and, and Ishmael will get half. No, it's there's just going to be two multitudes. God's blessing uh, is, is not limited in any way. Now, this blessing does sound a little bit rough, uh, the second half of it, when, she, when God's describing Ishmael, right? He's going to be against everyone. Everyone's going to be against him. He's going to be like a wild ass of a man, which I love that phrase. I think what it's saying here is he's going to have natural strength, right? He's going to be tough. He's going to be a fighter. And so this is uh, starting to point towards another consistent theme we see here of, of sibling rivalry, that when you have two sons, uh, it, there's usually one son that's stronger and one son that's weaker, and God goes with the one that's weaker. God doesn't choose the one to focus on that, that has natural strength. They have a strength of their own, and God gives strength to the one that's weak. Uh, Esau and, um, and Jacob, they're probably the, the clearest example of that, same thing. But with this choice here, God may choose Isaac... But God does not reject Ishmael. The election of one does not require rejection of the other. I've said this before using some you know, big theological terms, but election is about vocation, not salvation. Right? It's not that God only likes one family. It's that there's one family that is called to a specific purpose. But God can still bless outside of that specific purpose. And so even when it's mistakes that humans make and do terrible things to one another, God can bring a blessing out of it. And so Hagar sees that, and she becomes the first person in the Bible to name God. She calls him El Roy, which means the God who sees. And you know, one of the kind of interesting things here we'll see a few times is the, the separation between the angel of the Lord, that's who it says appears to at first, uh, between the separation between the angel and the Lord himself is a little flexible, right? She says, I've seen God, not I've seen an angel. So, you know, pay attention to that. It's just kind of these in, one of these interesting things of maybe that division isn't as clear as we think. But she calls him the God who sees. And I think that that name is, is especially meaningful when we're talking about someone who was an outsider, right? She's not Israelite. She's a slave. She's a woman. And yet God sees her. Think about who feels unseen today, how it feels to feel like nobody notices you. Maybe that's you, maybe that's been you at different times for different reasons. But if God is the God who sees, then that means God sees you. You know, the people that just tend to assume that God's focused on them because they are so smart or doing so well in life, actually God's attention may not be there as much as we think. You know, they're doing fine on their own. God's focus, especially as you look at the prophets, you look at the ministry of Jesus, God tends to focus on the people that we don't notice. We build our society in ways that we don't have to look at certain types of people. And yet that might be exactly where God is at, where God is working. Christ says that when you look at the least of these, we see him. So are we looking for Christ there? And are we paying attention to the people that God is paying attention to? That's what the story of Hagar is about, and I think that's where we're seeing 
who God is and who God truly cares about. All right, so that's where we're going to stop with Genesis today. As we're wrapping up, I want to just look real quick at this idea of faith in the New Testament, because this, this story of Abraham back in chapter 15, where he uh, believes the Lord, it's credited to him as righteousness, that shows up a couple of different times uh, in very different ways. So if you go to the book of Galatians, Paul uses this verse as he's dealing with people who are arguing that, you know, if you're, you're in Christ, if you're baptized, that's actually not enough. You also need to follow the Jewish law. You need to get circumcised. And Paul is very upset by this, and instead he focuses on the story of Abraham to say why that's not the case. So in Galatians 3, starting in verse 5, he says, Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of law or by your believing what you heard? And just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so you see that those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the Gentiles will be blessed in you. So we had that verse from uh, Genesis 15 and then also going back to Genesis 12. Paul calls that the call of Abraham the gospel in advance, right? We're seeing that this is the good news from the beginning that's fulfilled in Christ. But his point is, well, are you saved? Do you receive the Spirit when you do certain works like circumcision? Or was it when you believed? Right? And they all know, well, we've already received the Spirit and God is doing amazing things among us. So it must be when we believed. That's his point. And he uses Abraham here to say, yeah, Abraham didn't do anything in that story. He just believed what God promised him, and that's considered righteous. So his point is, yeah, you don't have to do anything. It's, it's about your belief. That's where this relationship with God starts. That's what God is concerned about, most of all. But an interesting thing is that in the letter of James, he's going to use the same verse to basically say the opposite. So in James 2, he's having this long conversation about uh, works and about faith and how you have to have both. You can't just have faith. So uh, here he says in chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't have works? Can faith save you? And he goes on to give examples like if, if somebody's in need, uh, a brother or sister, and you don't do anything for them, then that's not really faith. Uh, even demons believe that there's a God, but obviously they're not, they're not saved. They're not doing what God wants. They're actually working against him. But then going down to verse 21, was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? We haven't gotten to that story yet, but we will. You see is that his faith was active along with his works, and that faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to right as righteousness. So James is pulling in more of Abraham's story to say, like, yeah, he was willing to offer his son. Uh, he was willing to, to get circumcised. We'll talk about that next week. To say that, well, yeah, if you say you have faith, then that means you're going to do certain things. Uh, you're going to do things to care for other people, which seems to be the, the actual situation that he's talking about. So is he completely contradicting Paul? Do we have two verses that are, are saying very different things with the same story? Well, in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. Really, they're both guarding against two extremes, right? Paul is arguing against you have to do these things in order for God to give you the Spirit and be with you. 
And James is arguing that if you say you have faith, but that doesn't interact or, or affect your life in any way, uh, that faith isn't really that meaningful. And I think Paul would agree with that too, right? He's talking about the beginning, uh, whereas James is talking about the rest of your life. In Abraham's faith, uh, or sorry, in Abraham's story, it is both. Right? He has faith, and he does things that show that faith. In the beginning, he leaves, uh, and that's uh, something that he does. Right? So if we're thinking about faith as trust, because trust is relational, you're going to relate to that person in a specific way. You're going to do things if you really trust them. You don't have to do it to prove it, but it's just what you're naturally going to do. You know, I always like the example of, of bungee jumping. Right? If you're up on the top and you've got yourself strapped in, you've you got the rope on, the instructor's there, and he asks, okay, do you trust me? Do you trust the equipment? You say, I do, but I'm not going to jump. Well, do you really trust him? Do you really trust that instructor, him or her? Do you, do you really trust your equipment? Well, if you really did, you'd jump off. Uh, and so it's a lack, right? It's trust and action. They just naturally go together. It's, it's a mistake to try and divide them out. And we see both in Abraham's life, and hopefully we see both in our lives, that, that you trust in God, and that leads you to act in certain ways. You're not doing those things to prove yourself to God. You're not doing that so that God will save you or give you the Spirit or bless you. You just do it because you know it's the right thing to do. That's what we do in our relationships with the people that we trust, with the people we believe in, and so it shouldn't be any different with God. Now, like Abraham, we're not always going to be perfect but if we have that trust, that's going to lead us to live in a certain way. And if your life doesn't show any fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't show any evidence that, that God matters to you, maybe that's a sign that you need to think about, what is my relationship to God? What trust do I have? And what questions do I need to ask? You know, Abraham was considered faithful. He's considered a friend of God. And yet he's constantly questioning God and saying, why is this happening? Why is this not working out? So if you have those questions, that's okay. I don't know what kind of answer you'll get from God. I'm always willing to talk with you. But that's part of faith, too. It's all a part of a relationship, to have honest conversations. God expects that from us. And so if you have those questions, ask them in faith and see what happens. All right, well, thanks, everyone. We'll pick up with more of Abraham's story next week. I'll see you then. Thanks for joining us.